think that there is a a role that the U.S. should be playing in the in international affairs. But I think that there's not. It's, it should be, in my view, uh, a very simple thing to say. Okay, we're not going to return to the things that we used to do in the past. Obviously, it's easier said than done because if U.S. interests dictate that certain certain type of thing happen, then it's going to happen. Hello and welcome to the audit, a podcast dedicated to examining the contours of Pakistan's relationship with the world. With this season focusing on its cooperation with the U.S., we bring listeners' views from experts, decision makers, and stakeholders in the long history of these ties and where they might be headed. My name is Zishan Salahuddin, and I head the Center for Regional and Global Connectivity at the Bad Lab. Today, I'm hosting this episode with my colleague Aisha Burney. Thank you for that introduction, Zishan. The voice that you just heard was Michael Kugelman, Deputy Director of the Asia Program and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center, and we will hear more from him later on in the episode. The United States has had considerable influence in shaping Pakistan's economic and strategic policies, and in this episode we consider the level of alleged U.S. interference in Pakistan's leadership and internal political dynamics. U.S. or foreign interference has become a part of the public narrative in Pakistan's current political atmosphere, especially following the ouster of the last Pakistan Tariqa Insaf or PTI government led by Mr. Imran Khan. This raises concerns about what warrants such a claim and why it is so believable in the public realm. It also raises concern for Pakistan's own democratic and parliamentary capabilities, and that supposed interference from Washington enjoys that much influence. And if Washington is a propagator of democracy at home, but not elsewhere. All of this, of course, is with the cognizance that there have been attempts to walk back some of this narrative by the PTI leadership as they seek to normalize their relationship with the establishment as well as their American counterparts. And this has been done in a controlled manner to continue to hold on to the public support while also capitalizing on Pakistan's most important trade and strategic partner, which is the United States. Now, what would be the implication of such a rhetoric on this relationship? Well, to answer that, the Bad Lab's non-resident fellow Adam Weinstein sat down with Rauf Hassan. Rauf Hassan is an international media focal person and coordinator as part of the PTI's media team, who has been closely advising Imran Khan, and he will provide insights into the former prime minister and his party's views on the alleged regime change. Because of the circumstances of the recordings, the audio for this interview and others in this episode contains some distortions and background noise that we hope you'll excuse. It was realized that it may not be possible to take over, to stage a coup d'état in Jeddah. But the military mindset is such that they did not want to give up their right to rule this country. Consequently, the narrative that was developed was that we shall not take over, but we shall continue to rule the country. Since 2008, since the ouster of Musharraf, this is what we have seen till today. They have continued to rule, and how have they continued to rule? By manipulating. incumbent political leader so there are two segments of that conspiracy one the foreign uh, interest and two the internal domestic uh, well collaborators or implementers or whatever you may like to call it basically so that is the way it happened cipher is a reality it was declassified by the cabinet it's a reality i know the context of it basically it was an open blatant naked threat to pakistan to get rid of imran khan to avoid no confidence even the means were specified in the cipher the threat that came from the united states yeah but from uh, uh from mr lu who who in a meeting you know with pakistani ambassador based in washington you know, 
said that, which was then you know communicated to to to, to the foreign office, you know, through that cipher, which is which is the usual method. It was hidden from the government of the day. There's somebody in the foreign office, you know, nudged them, you know, we were able to get hold. Right? That is when it all started. So, Prime Minister Imran Khan's platform has been historically rooted in what you're referring to right now, which is the alleged corruption of the opposition parties, the fact that there's nepotism, uh, rampant corruption, the fact that these are dynastic parties. And that has had appeal, uh, at least among his base. But he's added another component to his platform now, which is this idea of the regime change and perhaps the harnessing of this anti-American sentiment related to that. Why has that made his narrative so popular? Because it is the truth. It is the truth. And truth has traction, even for the common people. America has never, never, ever been very popular in this country. This partnership was rooted in, in Pakistan's dominance by the United States. The aid that was given to us, it was not Pakistan's discretion to use the aid where it thought it should be used. It was on the directives of America that we could use the aid or could not use the aid. So, CETO, CENTO, the war in terror, Pakistan's involvement in war in terror, the kind of extent to which we suffered both in terms of loss of people as well as uh, material losses. I think it's incalculable for a poor country like Pakistan. Well, let's talk about the potential comeback of Imran Khan. We saw the strong performance in Punjab's by-elections and he might be able to replicate that in the general elections and it's quite conceivable he could be the next Prime Minister of Pakistan. How is he going to navigate relations with the United States at that point? That's for the United States to navigate the relations with Pakistan. I mean it. Well, it's easy. If they are interested in Pakistan, like two days ago, I was reading the statement, you know, by, by one of your senior officers, I forget the name, basically. We have to have a relationship with Pakistan. It's an important country. It's a strategically located country. God damn it, in case we have to have a relationship with, with us, then you have to cater to our interests also. That's important. It has to be a bilateral relationship. It cannot be a unilateral relationship. No, sir, we will not have it. Today, tomorrow, anytime, when the Prime Minister is there, let them think about having a relationship with Pakistan. We need, have, we need to come back to the region. The original liberation in 1948, when we did not respond to the invitation of the USSR, we plucked ourselves out of the region and planted ourselves, you know, somewhere we didn't belong to. It's time to come back to the region. Mend our fences with all countries there, including India, in the long run. We need to live in peace. We need to concentrate on the welfare of Pakistani people. And he says that my commitment is to 220 million people, not to the United States of America. Michael Kugelman, whose voice you heard earlier, gives us a different perspective on the validity of this narrative. It depends on what time frame we're looking at. If we're looking for the next two years, then I think uh, I'd like to think the answer would would be yes. But who knows what's going to happen uh, further further down the road? I mean, you look at the Biden administration, right? You look at what its top concerns and its top policies are. Clearly, the competition with China. Well, right now, the war in Ukraine is, is has taken center stage. But broadly speaking, the strategic competition with China is the big um, concern and the focus will be on that and trying to build a broader global uh, coalition to counter China's rise. Uh, so we're going to see that continue to happen. This this administration, I think, uh, quite frankly, much like the Trump administration, 
really does not have an interest in getting involved in in regime change or military interventions or anything like that. I really don't think that's going to be the case. But I will say this, that the Biden administration wants to separate itself from the Trump administration by showing that the U.S. can and should still exert global leadership. But for, as the Biden administration sees that, not through military interventions, not through getting involved in wars, but more so by working multilaterally with, with allies and partners to try to uh, obviously uh, uh, push back against China, but also to play a leadership role in countering these these really serious shared threats like climate change and um, and the pandemic and so on. So I'm I'm fairly confident in saying that uh, at least in the immediate term, I, I'd like to think that we're not going to see any more efforts in in which one worries about U.S. regime change. But who knows what could happen down the road? Obviously, one can't predict at this point in time. One can't deny uh, the past history of U.S. regime change efforts, uh, so to speak, around the world. I mean, going back to uh, you know the the Cold War period uh, in terms of recent history and and seeing how uh, covert activities have been used by the U.S. government. Uh, you look at places like Iran. Uh, there's so many other examples. I don't need to uh, to go over them here. Indeed, that is a legacy that's difficult for the U.S. government to shake. And certainly, it's that legacy that I think is is one reason why Khan's uh, U.S. regime change uh, narrative in in Pakistan, why that's gone over so well, and why it's been so, why why it's been believed by so many in Pakistan, not just within his own party, uh, you know, knowing that uh, there is this history of of U.S. meddling and interference and um, uh, efforts to be involved in uh, changes of of governments around the world, and so when you have the only data point that there is that of the conversation that a senior U.S. official had with the then Pakistani ambassador in which the U.S. Uh, official essentially said that maybe things would be better if, if Khan uh, didn't survive in power. It's understandable by why many Pakistanis would seize on that and think that that must mean that, um, you know, that was the opening salvo of, of the latest regime change, um, even because I, I understand that many in Pakistan would tend to assume the worst when it comes to U.S. policy. Um, so that I, I acknowledge all that, even though, in my view, there was absolutely no U.S. regime change in, in Pakistan at all. The U.S. wasn't involved at all in, in what happened with the, the no confidence vote. But in terms of what the U.S. can do and what it should do, honestly, I think the best way to, to get around that is just not to do it anymore. You know, the very best way for the U.S. to respond to these ongoing allegations about U.S. conspiracy is not to respond and not really to do anything or say anything except when officials are asked by it by the media, and then U.S. officials will say no, it's best to stay out of it, um, quite frankly, because of the fact that it's 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 something that, as we know, uh, many in Pakistan believe it to be true. The U.S. has been dragged into this ugly political crisis in Pakistan, and it's better for it to stay out. While the United States' appetite for this region can be debated, and which political party wins the next general elections remains to be seen as well, Pakistan's strategic importance in the world still stands. And so a bilateral relationship between the two countries will have to manage the interest or interference balance whilst not overstepping the autonomy and sovereignty of the Pakistani state and its priorities. Ian Talbot, professor of history at Southampton University, one of Europe's leading historians and author of many books on South Asia, shares his views with us on this. I think that um, at various moments of time, certainly the United States has um, tried to influence uh, Pakistan 
to go in a particular direction because of its geostrategic interests. Uh, and, and obviously Pakistan in the context of Cold War and then uh, later War on Terror has, has been uh, looked at by the United States from that perspective rather than perhaps from its own interests. I think that um, also people may in Pakistan uh, have suspicions about uh, U.S. Uh, interest and influence because a, a number of um, quite easily uh, sort of accessible information in terms of e economics, uh, more aid, not just military actually, but also economic aid, has gone into Pakistan during times of military rule, military regime, uh, and during civilian governments. And this in itself uh, could be used as, as to show that America has um, perhaps a preference uh, for uh, military rulers when its own strategic interests uh, are, are at stake uh, in the region or globally. Uh, so I think that the, there's that backdrop. Uh, and people obviously like Zulfikar Ali Bhutto um, actually claimed uh, that he was uh, removed from office uh, because of uh, his uh, well foreign policy uh, positioning uh, and also uh, nuclear um, aspirations so that um, there is this uh, well-established um, knowledge in inverted commas you know within Pakistani opinion that uh, United States has intervened in the past it has preferences perhaps for stability uh, which uh, plays into the hands of the military establishment which always presents itself as be like rescuing uh, Pakistan from uh, chaos, uh, and and that, that I think is is one of the uh, key areas you know in which these conspiracy theories of of U.S. influence uh, emerge. And of course, the answer to that in in Washington by a lot of folks would be, look, we work with who is in power, and we're happy to work with the civilian government, but if they're undermined by the military, we have no choice but to work with the military. Do you think that's a valid excuse or do you think there is some some evidence that Washington has been more than willing to sort of elevate the military establishment over the civilian government? The, the U.S. deals or the Pentagon deals directly with the military establishment. And sometimes that could be seen as bypassing uh, the civilians. Uh, the military establishment itself uh, obviously uh, encroaches continuously. Uh, on on the patches of uh, the civilians, you can just look at um, Bajwa's recent, you know, appeals for economic aid because of the crisis that, that Pakistan is facing at the moment. So that um, there there is this sort of grey area. I think I, I don't think I think one has to approach this with nuance and say that um, the uh, the relationship is, is uh, complex. Uh, if you wanted to take Washington's side, you could almost go to the argument that um, some of the difficulties that um, the U.S. has had in its dealings with Pakistan is these multi-centers of power uh, within uh, Pakistan uh, as a result of uh, the military's sort of encroachments uh, on areas of policy, uh, which uh, in many countries would be seen as unusual. Uh, but uh, have become accepted over decades within the Pakistan framework. So I think that it's a complex 
relationship. It's not a simple uh, case of uh, America sort of intervening to get its way. Uh, I think the people in Pakistan who talk in these uh, terms about the U.S. sometimes overestimate the U.S.'s ability to influence things uh, in the way that it might want to do so. There are limitations uh, to the U.S.'s ability to intervene in Pakistan, uh, as well as, of course, opportunities for it to do so as well. I think the war on terror obviously exacerbated uh, this. And uh, I mean, all of the... um, sort of controversies around that, um, the Bin Laden killing Raymond Davis affair, you know, other uh, episodes. I think that, um, but that was already there. Um, the first real anti-American sentiment, I suppose you could link back to about 1965 and the war with India, when many uh, Pakistanis believed that um, the US had let Pakistan down badly. Uh, as an ally, and that um, that uh, really was the beginning of this narrative uh, that um, relations with the United States, the United States wasn't trustworthy, you know, and, and there's obviously all the cliches about um, the all-weather friendship of the People Republic of China, uh, as far as uh, Pakistan is concerned. So that um, there are specific uh, moments and events, I think, which which set this in motion. Certainly the war on terror uh, brings it very much to the forefront. And probably, if we think about it, um, the rise of social media uh, is, is another uh, factor uh, in in this, uh, in, in that uh, I think it um, certainly encourages um, conspiracy theories uh, being proliferated. Uh, they're already there, but... Uh, enables them much more. I think that um, also, and this is one of the ironies of the Musharraf era, the opening up of private TV channels, uh, so you don't have just one state broadcaster anymore. I think that that uh, is a factor uh, in uh, the um, polarization of opinion and and, and, um, almost this sort of rising current of um, sort of opinion, uh, you know, that's being stirred up. We had a long interview with uh, Ambassador Ann Patterson, who, of course, was the, was the former U.S. ambassador to Pakistan during a very tumultuous period. She said, "Look, the the freedom of the Pakistani media actually caused a lot of uh, anti-American rumors to run wild because the media would stir up these rumors, and you know, as she pointed out." The talking point of the United States is is that we often want free media, but it you know free media comes with those those liabilities. And she wasn't advocating against free media, just to be clear. But that the proliferation of all of these different networks, according to her, did cause a lot of misunderstandings. Um, I want to zoom out and ask a bigger question, which is that you know as you've talked about before, the United States has worked with military dictators. Uh, the United States had robust working relationships with Ayub Khan, with, with Zia, uh, with, Pervez, with Pervez Musharraf. Um, do you think that this means that the United States doesn't genuinely care about democracy or democratic development in Pakistan? 
um, and and is content to work with a, a what's sometimes called a hybrid regime, um, or or is it really just a matter of the United States not being able to control the internal dynamics uh, inside Pakistan? That last point you made is very important: internal dynamics within within Pakistan. Um, going back, you know, to the idea that the Americans would rather work with uh, military dictators than civilians assumes that they can control, perhaps, uh, the internal dynamics far more than uh, is open to them as an external uh, operator. There is, I think, a realistic approach of, of working with. Um, whoever is in power. Uh, certainly, uh, both, I think, Britain and the United States uh, have pressed uh, military rulers to try and uh, democratise, uh, and, and certainly people like Zia uh, showed total uh, disregard to that after initially promising elections. So that um, the preference, I think, would be for a functioning um, democracy, uh, the conditions within Pakistan uh, don't always allow for that, uh, for all kinds of uh, reasons, so that um, Western powers that want to have influence within the country and need to keep all avenues open, and that includes obviously uh, dealings with um, military rulers, uh, and I think that that's the reality of the situation. I, I, I think that uh, that uh, is much more likely, uh, you know, than uh, conspiracy theory saying, well, the, the British, the Americans have no real interest in democracy. They, they just want to try and dominate Pakistan and they can do this better through military uh, rulers who they can influence than uh, civilians who may be more difficult. The debate on regime change is clear but nuanced. On one hand is anti-Americanism as the legacy of U.S. military and economic interference around the world. On the other hand are Pakistan's homegrown democratic and institutional deficits and power struggles. It is easy to blame American policies for internal failures, resulting in anti-Americanism being a popular electoral tool. We ask Mashahid Hussain, Pakistani senator and chairman of the Parliamentary Committee on the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and chairman of the Senate Defense Committee. He shares insights on how all of this has played out in Pakistan's current political climate with the ousting of former PM Imran Khan and the political turmoil that has followed. Right now in Pakistan's uh, elections for the last uh, 30 years, neither anti-Americanism nor anti-Indianism sense. However, there is a strong suspicion in Pakistan that uh, often uh, the US has played a role in uh, engineering a regime change. And unfortunately, the statement uh, of Mr. Bolton or confession of John Bolton recently that it's a lot of hard work, but we have been in involved in doing coup d'etats. Uh, so that also doesn't help. So I feel that uh, Imran Khan's uh, ouster was basically uh, because of internal factors. It was triggered by internal factors. Uh, his relationship with the military establishment became sour. And I think the U.S. was, current administration, was happy to see him go. And there's only one narrative which will sell in the next elections. It is anti-establishment. I also can't help but think that the U.S. regime change slogan has become a euphemism for the establishment, um, especially yes. among uh, thinking people. I think the only concrete evidence that we have 
of the U.S. trying to have a regime change was in 1965 when they tried to oust Field Marshal Ayub Khan through a coup d'etat, but they failed. They did facilitate, like Benazir Bhutto, after she had won the elections, they did facilitate her entry into power. Some people also feel that the first uh, military coup was also sponsored by the U.S., but we don't have concrete evidence. For a narrative that has dramatically reshaped the political landscape in Pakistan, there has been no hard evidence provided to support the claim. But it does help the PTI position that the U.S. has, in the past, been involved in regime changes across the world to meet its various foreign policy objectives. Simultaneously, engagement and cooperation with the U.S. continues, most recently in the floods, and earlier as the provider of the largest consignments of the COVID-19 vaccine to Pakistan. Madiha Afzal is a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings, where she focuses on U.S.-Pak relations and Afghanistan. She has previously worked as Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, College Park, and is the author of the book Pakistan Under Siege, Extremism, Society, and the State. She tells us what all of this means for engagement between Pakistan and the U.S., given both the history and state of contemporary politics in both countries. Many Pakistanis do realize that Imran Khan's conspiracy theory is a bit of a smokescreen for him pointing fingers at the military, which he finds that he cannot do openly. Uh, you know, and many of his followers are pointing fingers at the military when it comes to talking about why he lost power. When Imran Khan is talking about U.S. regime change, he's using it as a euphemism for the civil military imbalance in, in, in Pakistan. But to what degree does the U.S. itself benefit from that imbalance? And it strikes me that at times uh, the U.S. is perfectly willing to work directly with Pakistan's military when it suits Washington, and then when it doesn't suit Washington, they talk about the civil military imbalance. When it comes to the U.S. relationship with Pakistan's military, it's a relationship based on expediency because the Pakistani military is the strongest institution in the country, and it is perceived uh, as the as the most efficient institution, and it's a known quantity, right? It's a very stable institution that the U.S. has worked with uh, when the military was in charge and during civilian regimes, right? So so think about Ayub's time, you know, he was a military dictator. Uh, uh, you know, there was a, a, a very a positive relationship. Then this is the 1960s. Think about Zia's time, you know, a, a military dictator, uh, a relationship that was based on sort of cooperation on uh, Afghanistan. But again, that was a positive relationship. And that kind of has extended into Pakistan's civilian uh, governments as well, that the U.S. has continued working with um, the Pakistani military because it's seen as sort of stable, a, a known quantity. And the civilian, the civilian governments, you know, don't even last five years in office, right? Beyond the, the two governments that lasted five years in office between 2008 and 2018, in some ways, uh, makes sense uh, from that kind of short-term perspective, but it does not make sense from a long-term perspective because the U.S. the U.S.'s goals and the Pakistani military's goals are strategically not aligned. Were and in particular were not when it came to, for instance, Afghanistan, because uh, the, you know the, the U.S. was was fighting the Taliban. The Taliban. Uh, on the other hand, um, had sanctuary in, in, 
in, in Pakistan. And so working with the military while, you know, uh, yielded kind of some short term wins, like, uh, you know, uh, being able to target Al-Qaeda members uh, uh, via U.S. drone strikes, being able to target TTP members via U.S. drone strikes. And those are important short-term uh, wins that have had uh, had an impact. Longer term, uh, you know, that was not a fruitful way to go about this. Longer term, the, the fruitful way to go about this would be to sort of work with Pakistan's civilian regime, uh, civilian governments, thereby bolstering them and actually leading to a relationship where um, the goals uh, of the relationship, right, uh, the, the goals of the civilian government will be far more aligned because they will not be security focused. Uh, the final thing I'll say is that doesn't mean that the military goes out of the equation altogether, even in this kind of uh, arrangement, because the military in Pakistan is very much <laughs> the 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 one sort of in charge of security policy, right? But it doesn't, it is not the primary interlocutor with Pakistan's government. It becomes the secondary interlocutor. It becomes the, perhaps the implementer and not the decider of where this policy is going. So the kind of broader, less transactional relationship that you've often advocated for, and that frankly, Pakistan has argued for, uh, requires long-term thinking on the part of Washington. Uh, and I guess it requires Washington to see uh, Pakistan's intrinsic importance as a state. How can the U.S. engage with Pakistan and use whatever influence it does have to alter this narrative? And uh, what can the Biden administration and the Shabazz Sharif-led coalition government do to work towards more normal relations given the reality that this Shabazz Sharif-led coalition is in some sense a lame duck administration right now because there's going to be another election? It's really difficult to, uh, to challenge conspiracy theories, right, in general. Uh, because anytime you actually openly engage with them, you're giving more fuel to the conspiracy theory by, by engaging with it publicly as well. What's been useful is, I think, the engagement um, with the at the foreign minister level, right? So Bilal Bhutto Zardari with the U.S. Secretary of State, I think they've had a warm initial engagement, and that can continue. Both sides are a little bit um, uh, sort of uh, constrained in what they can do in terms of top level engagement. Um, if handled diplomatically, if handled well, I, it can still work. Uh, but I. But it's a it's a tricky sort of proposition. In some ways, making sure that the engagement at you know other levels continues, that it's broadened, that it's multifaceted, uh, that it's you know constructive, and that attention is drawn to it. Um, often we find that you know Pakistanis don't quite know uh, what the U.S. engagement in Pakistan. Is right. So, so think about that. The the vaccine um, donations. Um, it's not clear that Pakistanis uh, actually really understood the, the full weight of the fact that Pakistan was the largest recipient of, of you know these Moderna and Pfizer uh, vaccines. 
from the U.S. in the entire world. That's huge, right? That's non-transactional. That is something that, uh, if drawn attention to, can can help improve the relationship. Madhya Afsal pointed towards a long-term U.S.-Pakistan relationship that puts the civilian government at the forefront of diplomacy. And as Mushayid Hussain points out, the PTI would use the anti-establishment rhetoric in the lead-up to the coming elections. It warrants a closer look into Pakistan's contemporary domestic politics, the source of struggle for power between its largest political parties, and the relationship between the civilian political elite and the military establishment. Let's hear again from Ian Talbot, this time about these power dynamics. Sometimes the um, civilian politicians have been their own worst enemies and during periods of um, democratic rule. I mean, I'm thinking now of the 1990s. Um, they've uh, even gone to the extent of appealing to the military to help them overthrow uh, rivals uh, to uh, their power. So that um, civilian um, opportunistic politics uh, has definitely been uh, a feature uh, in uh, the failure of uh, democratic consolidation. Of course, once the military has intervened, uh, as it did under Ayub, it began to establish uh, its influence um, within the economy, as well as uh, as, uh, as well as security and uh, foreign policy areas, uh, and that's made it much more entrenched uh, and influential even behind the scenes uh, in so-called democratic uh, days. So that uh, I think when we're talking about why is democracy uh, not being consolidated, we need to think about what are the factors which have led uh, to uh, military uh, imbalance in the relationship with civilians. You know, and you could look at all kinds of historical factors, some of which would be external, but some of which would be internal. Rove Hassan helps us understand the basis for this opportunism and how the military establishment has long benefited from the political rivalries and vitriol between the largest political parties. Well, the military establishment is a permanent feature and permanent factor in Pakistan, or has been so. But the foreign interference has kept happening and open time to time to time. And like in this case, the American interference did happen. And, uh, but military, military establishment has been a constant factor in Pakistan's policy. The alleged U.S. interference, or lack thereof, also impacts Pakistan's relationship and foreign policy with regard to the United States, which remains the country's largest trade partner. There clearly needs to be a balance between recognizing America's long-standing cooperation with Pakistan and managing Pakistan's internal and regional priorities in this context. Let's hear more from Madiha Afzal on this. The, the history of the relationship, the mistrust um, has uh, yielded a long kind of shadow. Engaging with it on its a, as a country in its own right will yield dividends that the U.S. wants uh, or that will help the U.S. Uh, when it comes to Pakistan, India, when it comes to Pakistan, China, when it comes to Pakistan, Afghanistan, right? So it's useful to engage with it in its own right, because that will yield to a, a better country, you know, a, a better governed country in a very important neighborhood. And it will yield dividends when it comes to thinking about, um, you know, the, the, the Pakistan-India relationship, uh, the Pakistan-China relationship. You know, and I, I said this in a long-winded way earlier, 
you know, one can't, one has to trust the process. That basically means that, you know, what Pakistan wants is the outcome. That's not what it's going to get right away. This is going to be an incremental process. This is going to be a step-by-step process in which Pakistan will also need to pull its weight when it comes to the economic side of the bargain. If you want an economic relationship, it can't come from one side. Regardless of conspiracy narratives, the relationship must be one that benefits both countries on current priorities for prosperity, stability, and cooperation. There's no denying that the regime change narrative is powerful and has altered the political fabric of the country. However, given the many existential crises facing the country, Pakistan's foreign policy requires a stable and mutually beneficial relationship with the U.S. for the short to medium term. We have spoken in this episode about how even the PTI is trying to walk back some of this narrative, indicating that even they recognize the importance of the relationship. How it will unfold over the next year as Pakistan votes for the next election remains to be seen. For this episode of The Audit, I am Zeeshan Salahuddin. And I'm Aisha Birney. Join us for the next episode as we continue to explore the intricacies of the Pak-US relationship. If you have any feedback and thoughts on this episode, please share them on social media or at info at As always, we thank all the guests on this episode and hope you benefited from their insights. The Audit is produced by the Badlab Center for Regional and Global Connectivity. Episodes featuring Adam Weinstein are produced in collaboration with the Quincy Institute. This episode was co-hosted by Aisha Birni and Zishan Salahuddin. Edited and produced by Sara Khan. Additional production and research assistance from Maryam Mirza and Sameh Noor. Executive production by Shahab Siddiqui and Zishan Salahuddin. Music by Emmett Fenn. Season 1 of The Audit is made possible with a generous grant from the Holling Center for International Dialogue. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe for more.